Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Labor Day Weekend 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, we have a pipeline going through Iowa's first congressional district, parents first in the second. We're having a hard time getting the candidates together in the fourth. And all across the state, there are dozens of candidates running unopposed this year. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. With me today is the full roster. We have Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Aaron. Lead Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning, Aaron. Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times is here. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. Aaron, the uh, the best way for people to get together is to smile on their brother and try to love one another. Would you do that right now? I would advise to do that uh, right now or in the very immediate future, yes. <laughs> and finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. All right, so let's get to it. It was a busy week for us here on the Iowa Politics Beat. Uh, a lot to go through. Um, first up, a pipeline runs through it. Eastern Iowa, that is. Uh, that's another one that divides The youngs have no idea what I just said there. It, that's a reference to A River Runs Through It, an old movie. An old movie from, what, the 80s? Anyways. The company that wants to build the pipeline, Wolf Carbon Solutions, delivered a doozy of a yeah but this week during a public hearing in Davenport. Our Sarah Watson reported that company officials said they do not want to force landowners into easements so the pipeline can run through their land. But, so Sarah, you covered that meeting. Um, How was the company's message received by those who chose to attend? Yeah, so um, the Iowa Utilities Board, Scott Davenport's in Scott County was one of several meetings that they held. This pipeline is supposed to go from an ADM plant in uh, Cedar Rapids, connect to one in Clinton and cross the Mississippi River until it stores this captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants in deep underground in central Illinois. And so as part of these hearings with the Iowa Utilities Board, um, they could an- the company representatives could answer questions from the public, from landowners, provide parcel maps. And so one of actually the first question that was asked in, in Davenport was, would, would you be willing to take eminent domain off the table? And so eminent domain is uh, where the company would file for uh, legally forcing um, residents to enter into easement agreements to, to be able to run the pipeline through their land. And that requires approval from the Iowa Utilities Board. When they were asked that, they said, well, we want to do everything in our power not to use eminent domain. But there are some sensitive areas like around the Mississippi River where we can only go in at a limited spot um, just with a lot of development around along the river. And geologically, it'll be more difficult to run a pipeline under a river than in farmland. And so if some of those landowners really aren't willing to negotiate, that could put the whole project um, in jeopardy. So that's that was their message. And I think that especially the county board of supervisors that were there didn't were took that with a kind of warily and are looking to draft some kind of statement um, uh, opposing use of eminent domain in Scott County and and also they talked about possibly putting together some kind of county ordinance to to prevent that from happening but it's not clear how much power that would have if the if they did apply and the Iowa Utilities Board granted them 
uh, ability to use eminent domain. But um, but also residents had lots of questions around like who would respond in an emergency in case there was a leak. The company said that they'll train local fire departments, but don't have that plan totally solidified yet. Um, and there are just yeah lots of questions about safety, about whether this is vi this project is viable without federal subsidies. It's not. They were pretty honest about that. So uh, all in all, it was a really interesting meeting, and I'm sure that this will be a, a really uh, uh, key topic a ahead of um, the elections, too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. This is one of two pipeline projects being proposed in Iowa. It's, it's just been fascinating to watch this debate in general evolve in, in recent years. Definitely, definitely. And uh, and Wolf Carbon Solutions really tried to distance themselves from other pipeline projects. And they really said, you know, we've never had to use eminent domain and um, and would really, really prefer not to use that. So. Um, so, yeah, so it'll definitely. And then just the you know, obviously, we've we've read about and talked about the debate of um, is this even viable to be propping up the ethanol industry with uh, with these carbon capture uh, pipelines. And another interesting thing I guess I will notice, at least one resident uh, supported the the carbon capture pipeline, uh, a business attraction um, person who worked for the Quad Cities Chamber said that she gets companies that are looking for sites that have access to a carbon capture pipeline like this um, when they're looking for sites. So I thought that was interesting as well. I, I was wondering, uh, Sarah, and obviously you mentioned the uh, meeting, like how many politicians around there are even like talking about this in a like meaningful or significant sort of way? Or is this kind of just a back burner thing for quite a few politicians in that area? Yeah, so there's definitely uh, there. It's mostly right now like county board of supervisors candidates. So it's like a lot of local candidates. I didn't see any um, any like state house or um, or congressional representatives that were there. But it sounded like from the Scott County Board of Supervisors meeting last night that um, they would want the current board wants to contact legislators and, and talk about this, especially the eminent domain issue. Yeah, and that that's a great question, Jared, because that gets back at what I said was it's been interesting to see the evolution of this debate. And it feels like right now we're in this point where, especially at the state house level, uh, which obviously I'm most familiar with, it, it feels like state lawmakers are consider themselves or trying to kind of walk this tightrope between, you know, wanting to address concerns that their constituents have at the grassroots individual, you know, property owner level, but also have these significant and maybe powerful and certainly well-funded business interests who want to see these projects happen. Um, and, and so it's been kind of interesting to, like I said, to, to see that, that kind of the overall debate and where the, the state policymakers are, are trying to fall. And I just remembered there was actually a Democratic candidate um, who's from Eldridge. Her name's Kay Pence, who was there, who who had lots of questions and and um, spoke in opposition of it. And I think reading um, like Aaron Jordan with the Gazette had a really good article about the Lynn County meeting, and there were several um, there were several politicians, state politicians there, who were running for office. Yeah, interesting stuff. And like you said, this is uh, happening in multiple places and ongoing and. Uh... One, one, one we'll be keeping an eye on. Uh, next up this week, staying in eastern Iowa, Ashley Hinson at her recent campaign fundraiser leaned into her opposition 
to policy at Linmar Schools that was designed to offer a safe space for transgender students. Congresswoman Hinson uh, sustained her criticism of the policy at that fundraiser and challenged her Democratic opponent, Liz Mathis, to offer her position on the policy. Um, Tom, correct me if this has since been updated, but the last I saw, uh, the Mathis campaign declined to take the bait, saying that K-12 public education policy is the role of the state, uh, not the federal government. Um, And beyond that, Tom, uh, Hinson made similar remarks at the state party fundraiser that I covered a couple weeks ago. So it's starting to sound like this is becoming a a stump speech staple for Ashley Hinson. Should should we expect to continue hearing uh, about this uh, specific topic from the congresswoman over the next two months? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Henson actually hosted a telephone town hall last night and was asked about her plan to curb what one caller viewed as indoctrination of children in schools. And Henson went on to decry what she termed to be, quote, woke policies, unquote, uh, by the Linmar School District. Uh, and she talked about being the mother of two boys, ages 11 and 9, who attend Linmar schools and whom she said were uh, right in the heart of that. She said parents need to have a say in, in, in that there needs to be transparency in what their kids are learning. She said she opposes the teaching of critical race theory, claiming that it teaches the U.S. is a racist country, Uh, quote, instead of teaching about what we need to be talking about, which is learning about civics and education, end quote. Um, It it should be noted that the academic approach was developed in the legal field and largely taught in law schools and other graduate level settings that examines the um, intersectional impacts of race and racism throughout society. Um, CRT does not attribute racism to white people as individuals or even uh, an entire group of people. Um, It just simply states that U.S. social institutions, the criminal justice system, the education system, the labor market, housing market, healthcare systems um, are laced with racism embedded in laws, regulations, rules, and procedures that lead to differential outcomes by race. Um, But you know, unable to separate their individual identity as American from the social institutions that govern us. Many Americans have come to interpret calling social institutions racist as calling them racist personally. And it's become kind of a new boogeyman um, for many conservatives, including in Iowa. And um, it appears that uh, that Representative Henson has kind of latched on to that. Um, she talked about co-sponsoring legislation um, titled the Parents' Bill of Rights, Um, The bill, among other requirements, directs local educational agencies to publicly post curriculum um, for each elementary and and secondary school grade level online. It also requires schools to notify parents and guardians on their rights, including the right to review the school's curriculum and budget, uh, uh, right to look at a list of all books and reading materials contained in the school library, and the right to information about um, violent activity in, in the child's school. You know, Republicans argue these bills, again, uh, will foster better communication between parents and teachers. And as Hinton talked about last night, that that it would increase transparency. Um, Critics contend parents already have a voice in their child's education and that, you know, this legislation is just kind of a Trojan horse for conservatives to intimidate and bully public school officials over materials about race and diversity and sexuality that they deem to be obscene or objectionable. 
educators have said uh, that they worry that these so-called curriculum transparency requirements will invite censorship, uh, professional burnout, and resignations. Typically, the books are about LGBTQ people or people of color and sometimes includes passages that describe sexual activity. But um, Henson, uh, during her town hall, you know, again, said that she'll continue to um, push back on, on, on quote unquote woke indoctrination and that Iowa students should be um, learning reading, writing, arithmetic and the basics and that she shares Iowans values and concerns about um, putting our kids first and, and again, standing up to what she has, has termed to be woke indoctrination. Um, <laughs> at the risk of editorializing here, and I'm trying really careful to walk that line, I, I I, I can't tell you how often I think of, and again, this is another one that'll define the generations here, but there's an old movie called The American President, and there's a, uh, a famous monologue in that movie where uh, the person says you win elections by telling people what's wrong with their lives, why should they, they should be afraid, and who's to blame for it. Um, for some reason, that scene just popped into my head again. Um, Todd, you're uh, writing about this uh, for weekend print editions. Uh, I don't want you to give away too much of the farm. We all need those clicks, but uh, so we want people to pick up and read your column. But uh, anything you want to uh, tease about uh, the thoughts you're going to offer on this topic? Well, you know, it's it's just uh, a disagreement between a couple of Linmar parents, the congresswoman and my myself. So. Uh, you know, I, you know, one, one thing about this is it's like, why didn't Ashley Henson run for the Linmar school board instead of Congress? Because that's where these decisions are made and should be made. Uh, she calls the policy radical, even though what it really is, is that there, there were basically processes or, or policies that they already followed for the last, for, for years that they in their reading of state and federal law, they decided they needed to put them in writing and put them into a single coherent policy. So I'm not sure how that's radical, you know, doing what they've been doing. Uh, she says it's ridiculous. Uh, I point out, of course, you know, several parts of the argument of opponents to this policy that are also ridiculous. And I mean, you're right. She's she's basically taking advantage of a, of a situation which, you know, is con complicated and sensitive and just basically, you know, slapping slogans on it and, you know, fear mongering and, you know, and the core of this is you read some of the comments she's made and you, and you read some of the stuff that other people are saying is that there's, there's sort of this quiet, idea behind this is that, you know, being transgender isn't a real thing. And I think that's, you know, one of the, one of the biggest parts of this that's, that's ridiculous. And, and, you know, I also wonder these folks that these politicians that want school districts to become gender informants to parents, I mean, are they going to, are they willing to own what happens next when, when kids are, are abused or kicked out of the house and become homeless or, or worse things than that? I mean, they're not. They're not going to be around when that happens. They, they just like to talk about on the campaign trail. I mean, we're talking about kids' lives, and that somehow gets lost in, in all of this. They're just – the transgender kids are just sort of pawns in a, in a political theater. So 
So I make some of those points, and there's there's also a cameo appearance by the the late great uh, David Bowie. So there was a a stat I saw I think yesterday um, when I was just you know numbing my brain scrolling through Twitter endlessly that uh, mentioned that at present there are state laws banning transgender students from participating in sports in 18 states. And then that's compared to one of the people pushing some of these laws, uh, Beth Stelzer, who's with Save Women Sports. She said she could think of five examples in the country of transgender girls playing in K-12 through sports. So there are more laws covering this stuff, possibly, than there are like people that this would even apply to. Yeah, you you always love to see legislative action to ban hypothetical situations. I mean, that's that's some really responsible lawmaking. Uh, yeah, and you know, and this bathroom issue. I mean, there's there are studies out there, multiple studies that basically show that transgender kids are actually in more danger of being assaulted if they're not allowed to use the bathroom of their gender identity. And but all we hear is the other side that somehow you know letting them use bathrooms, uh, locker rooms, stay in the same room on overnight trips. I mean, it's just this endless, you know. It's again, it's it's these hypothetical, no evidence, you know, fear mongering arguments that that just and, it, and it's a gener- you know it's a generational uh, divide. I mean, you know, young people are living in this world and they accept the reality of this and they're not interested in living the way we did 40 years ago with people that couldn't come out of the shadows and be themselves. But you've got an older generation that just can't hack all of this societal change and they're just uncomfortable and they want their discomfort put into the Iowa code and that's, or, or in the, you know, in federal law. And that's, it's not about them. I mean, that's, and, and you brought up the, the probably the most important thing here, Todd, that I wanted to circle back on uh, before I move on, which is the, you know, the safety and well-being of these young people. And, and um, uh, let the cynic in me take over for a few seconds. And I, I guess I'd note that uh, transgender teens don't generally donate to campaigns and can't vote yet. <laughs> um, so so they're not a constituency that policymakers uh, some policymakers, anyways, concern themselves with. Um, that cynicism aside, the very real issue at stake here is, is exactly what you addressed. Look, it's it's a wonderful thing to say parents should be involved and informed, and and nobody on face value disagrees with that. But there's also a reality out there that that some of these kids are in homes uh, with parents that are not supportive of, of this kind of thing. And, and that puts their mental, emotional, and, and sometimes literal physical health in danger. Um, and, and that's why people have concerns about these types of laws. And that's what's kind of getting swept in the ru- swept under the rug when, um, you know, when, when officials and politicians uh, say it's all about uh, parents' rights. So um, definitely a story worth staying on and, and, uh, Check out Tom's coverage if you didn't catch that and and uh, watch for Todd's column this weekend. And, oh, and I should uh, point out, too, um, uh, our, our, our colleague, um, Elijah, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to pronounce Elijah's last name because I haven't said it out loud, so I'll, I'll mispronounce it. But he put together a wonderful piece on uh, 
some of these laws and the impact it's already having on uh, older LGBTQ Iowans and uh, some of whom are leaving this state uh, because of it. Um, check out that one too. All right, moving on now to the fourth district. We keep moving westward. And over there, it has proven a challenge to get the two candidates into the same room. Uh, Jared, you are in the process of reporting this week uh, that a planned event that was to feature both Republican incumbent U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra and his Democratic challenger Ryan Melton fell through. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that, what happened there. Um, And and also, I haven't heard about any debates between these two. Is that going to happen? And why is it proven so hard to get these two guys together? Well, uh, yeah, uh, Randy Fiantra, who's in his first term, and Ryan Melton, who's challenging him, they were supposed to take part in a forum together on uh, September 12th at the uh, the Clay County Fair, uh, which, you know, builds itself as one of the biggest fairs uh, in the world uh, on its website. Uh, proud tradition. Um, the plans for that forum completely fell through on Wednesday, as did plans actually for an Iowa governor's forum. And um, the same day that those plans kind of fell through, um, Melton took to Twitter to say that this was another example of his opponent not being willing to appear at an open forum. And Melton maintained when I talked to him that Feenster's folks, they reached out to event sponsors and said that they wouldn't be participating. Um, and then when I got in touch with Feenster's campaign, uh, they said that uh, this was just an example of desperate politicians saying desperate things. Uh, and then they pointed out that uh, uh, Randy Feenster has attended two joint or will attend uh, two joint forums in the coming weeks and that he's visited each of the 39 counties in our district at least three times and is uh, currently on a, a fourth visit. Um, so that's kind of where things stand with the, the fair matter. Now, they, they are supposed to participate in a pair of Iowa Corn Growers Association events uh, next week. But those aren't public in the same way that a county fair event would be, and they're not in a debate format. And when I emailed uh, Feenstra's uh, people, they didn't say anything to me about a potential debate for November. And Melton said he hasn't heard anything about a possible debate either. So this could be another one of those races that we've seen uh, in a lot of races around the country where there's just not going to be a debate that happens or is likely to not happen. And and that corn growers um, event forum, Jared, will they at least even be on the same on the stage at the same time, or not even that? That w- that was not my understanding from when I talked to uh, Melton about it. So, so there you go. Yeah. So, uh, and and that's well. Look, there, there's 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 a few tried and true uh, rules of politics, and, and one generally is that watch for the person who is asking for the debates, and then you know who's behind. In any given campaign, no front runner has ever demanded uh, debates. So it's it, and especially in that district, obviously, it's easy to understand why Ryan Melton um, wants to follow through. Steve King, um, Todd, help me remember, he kind of had a, a up and down record with debates, didn't he? Or was it mostly down? Did he not usually participate? I feel like he did sometimes, but maybe help. he didn't debate. There were a lot. There were several campaigns he didn't do debates when they were campaigns that he felt comfortable he was going to win and so did i think the first i think maybe christy vilsack when she ran against him was i think they had multiple debates so yeah and did he debate jd shulton when that one got close (sighs) i don't think he did i don't think he yeah i don't think he i don't think he did yeah 
Yeah. And I mean, we st- we still don't know if the if they're gonna. I mean, are there going to be gubernatorial debates? I mean, it's that would be pretty sure would be unprecedented because I mean, even Terry Branson even debated Jack Hatch three times, and that you know that was Branson won ninety eight counties. Right. So yeah, I mean the, the 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 latest from the Reynolds campaign is that I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was essentially you know we're working on it and kind of giving the impression that there will be at least one, but it's nothing's confirmed yet. So until it's confirmed, it's, it's a, it's a fair question. We'll see. I'd be shocked if we, and now this is just me, but I'd be shocked if we see three, uh, like we saw even four years ago, there was three, right? Um, uh, the central Iowa TV stations, ones, the Q quad cities area one and the Iowa press one. And they were packed real tight into like a couple week window in October, as I remember. And one was on a Sunday morning at 8 a.m., which. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, in some ways, this is, you know, kind of a personal hobby horse for, for us as media because they're events that are easy to cover and they lend themselves to narratives and everything like that. But I, I do generally think that, like, I don't care what the, the margins are in any race. You, you should debate because people should get to see what you're like in a setting like that. And, you know, a lot of times people's minds aren't made up by debates, but, you know. I agree 100%, Jared. You said it perfectly. And, and you know, because we'll even, when we get to those debates, I can tell you right now, we'll talk about it on the podcast. And one of the things one of us will say was, is who knows if this moves the needle, if at all, debates usually don't. But <laughs> at the same time, I 100% agree that, they should still happen because, you know, you're running for public office. You're doing your work on behalf of the public. You're being paid by the public. You should stand up in front of the public and tell them what you want to do. Uh, so I agree 100% uh, even acknowledging the the limited impact that, that they tend to have. Maybe the Reynolds campaign will do a debate on Fox and Friends. Or maybe they'll – or maybe they'll uh... – I think the Iowa 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 State game is three o'clock on September tenth. That would be a good time for them to have a debate on public television or something. <laughs> oh man, that w- that would be like the uh, episode of The Simpsons where uh, you know Homer's watching TV and they're like, "We interrupt this public debate for a football game," and then they cut away <laughs> from the uh, very intense local municipal discussion for some good old fashioned football. <laughs> the bizarro Heidi. Right? The opposite. (laughs) All right. Finally this week, our Caleb McCullough reported on the nearly 50 statehouse candidates who do not have a challenger in the November 8th election. And, and, you know, for those of you who follow politics, which is probably most of you if you're listening to this podcast, you know that this isn't necessarily something unusual. There's always unopposed candidates. Uh, But Caleb took an interesting look at uh, what these folks – Uh, do with their time uh, when they're running unopposed in a general election. So, Caleb, with no campaign to run for themselves, are these candidates just sitting around in their lawn chairs with a bush light soaking in the last days of summer sun, or or what are they up to? Well, they may be doing a little bit of that too, but um, (laughs) that wasn't uh, something they brought up on the phone, unfortunately. Um, They told me that (laughs) that they're still working. uh, The ones I talked to told me they're still working close to as hard or just as hard as they do during a competitive campaign. Um, so a lot of these candidates in play, uh, are in places um, that skew heavily toward one party, um, as always is the case. So Democrats are in places like Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Republicans in more rural areas generally. But there's a couple in Waterloo, Sioux City um, as well. 
but these candidates, they're mostly working to get others in their party elected, um, which makes sense. So representatives that have been around for a while um, are mentioned that they're getting involved in fundraisers for fellow members of their party. And um, both new and older representative, representatives alike said that they're you know going outside their district to door knock um, and campaign for or alongside state house candidates in more competitive districts. Um, so, you know, each party wants to, you know, Republicans want to maintain their majority. Democrats want to pick up a few seats. Um, so they're kind of, you know, working on that. Um, and then they're also working to get out the vote in their district because they want to see members of their party higher on the ballot elected. Um, so someone like Adam Zabner, a Democrat in Iowa City, you know, he could get a thousand votes or 20,000 votes and still win, but he preferred to get 20,000 votes because that's 20,000 more votes for someone like Dejir, um, which would help him with, you know, the goals he wants if, if we have a Democratic governor. So, um, so that's, you know, Getting other people elected, that's a big stake. And then the other thing that they're doing is um, meeting people and stakeholders in their district. Um, you know, candidates who have who have opponents are also doing this. You know, it's part of campaigning. But in this case, it's, you know, they're not necessarily looking for votes, so it's got a different flavor to it. Um, and even candidates who have been in the legislature for, a while, for several years, um, they have some new people to meet because redistricting changed the boundaries of their district. And so there's new areas new business leaders, schools that they have to kind of get acquainted with. So that's kind of what they're doing um, over these next couple of months uh, without any opponent on the ballot. Yeah. Uh, as, as Caleb noted, this obviously varies from geographic region to geographic region of the state. Jer- Jared, up there in decidedly conservative Western Iowa, do you have a few more? Do you have a lot of uncontested races up there? So we have a, a handful that are like completely uncontested, uh, mostly on the the Republican side. Actually, entirely on the Republican side. I don't think, or no, excuse me, because Schulten's running unopposed. But yeah, um, and then we have a couple more that are, you know, all due respect to third party candidates, uh, a couple more that are functionally um, uncontested because it's either just a libertarian candidate. Or you know a candidate that just filed to to run that doesn't have a declared party. Yeah. So we we have quite a few in our neck of the woods. Yeah, I will say that the the forty five number is is specifically candidates that have no opponents. So there was yeah a handful, a couple dozen more, or maybe a dozen that had you know just a libertarian or a no party candidate. Yeah. All right. I uh, just wanted to toss in two really uh, quick things before we sign off. Uh, just number one, as a beer snob, I got to say it was really hard for me to write Bush Light into the script. So I feel like <laughs> I deserve hazard pay for that one. Uh, I just happened to say those words. And I am i don't care how popular your hit is here. Sorry, not sorry, Iowa. <laughs> and that's, that's going to, we're going to get letters. And number two, since we went around the horn uh, with reporting by everyone here, um, I wanted to steal a few quick seconds to plug one of my stories this week. Um, On Thursday online and Friday print, I reported on a huge spike in challenges brought to voter registration information in some of Iowa's most populous counties, including Blackhawk and Lynn. Um, It it was kind of interesting. And and look, it's, it's probably not a huge deal at the end of the day because Uh, It sounds like all of the challenges were to voters who were probably going to be wiped off the rolls pretty soon anyways. Most of them are folks, it looks like, who've moved out of state. But just that spike and that surge, it it was interesting and it's worth watching. And uh, it kind of got the attention of local elections officials. So if you you missed that one, uh, check out that story. 
That's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us on any number of streaming audio services, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. If you have any topics to suggest or you just want to reach out or you want to send me an angry letter about speaking ill of Bush Light, you can send an email to podcasts at thegazette.com. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll get all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that On Iowa Politics newsletter at thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The Surf Zombies will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on our show, please send us a sound file. For the whole gang, Tom, Caleb, Sarah, Jared, Todd, and our producer Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast.
Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.